Hello and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nualtra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialised and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. We invite you to drop into the Dietitian Cafe as we discuss the latest nutrition trends, topics and research. Every month, two episodes are released. One is an interview with a featured guest and the other a debate highlighting a hot topic in the world of nutrition and dietetics. However, before I start, can I ask you a huge favour? If you enjoy the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. Meat alternatives have witnessed a remarkable transformation in recent years. From meatless chicken fillets to vegan duck, new products are frequently appearing on supermarket shelves. A study by the Vegan Society in 2021 found that one in five people reported to have reduced the amount of meat they were eating. But are meat substitutes healthier than actual meat? And are public concerns about ultra-processed foods and the cost of living crisis driving people away from meat alternatives? Let's find out in today's episode. For this debate, I'm delighted to be joined by two award-winning nutrition professionals, Louise Durrant, who is Corn Foods Nutrition Communications Manager, and industry nutritionist Claire Baisley. Welcome, Claire and Louise. It's great to have you both here, and thank you for joining me. Before we get started, I'll hand over to you both to introduce yourselves a little further. Louise, over to you. Thanks, Corinne, and thanks for inviting me to join this conversation. So I'm a registered dietitian and I also have a PhD in nutritional sciences. My career started at Yakult UK, where my focus was particularly on the, the research programme and the healthcare professional communications. I then moved to the British Nutrition Foundation, where I got to do a lot of nutrition science communication to the general public in the media. Um, I joined Corn Foods as Nutrition Communications Manager in 2023, and in this role, I'm responsible for our core nutrition communications with healthcare research and nutrition professionals, as well as our partnerships with health-related organisations and our internal workforce nutrition education. I'm also currently co-director of the European Nutrition Leadership Platform Essentials Programme. And at home, my husband and I have two young daughters and a rather large dog to keep us quite busy. Hi, I'm Claire, and I'm also delighted to be part of this podcast, uh, and thanks very much for inviting me. I'm a registered nutritionist. I have a degree in biological science and a master's in human nutrition. I'm a freelance consultant to the food industry, and I also do one-to-one clients. I was lucky enough to win the FCF Nutritionist of the Year Award in 2021, um, and The bread and butter of what I do is creating corporate nutrition strategy for commercial businesses uh, from startups to multinationals. Um, And I I really focus on influencing businesses to evoke really meaningful change that puts public health front and centre of everything they do. Um, I've over 20 years experience and I've worked in regulatory environments, food manufacturing, food service and retail. Um, I started my career at the Food Standards Agency. I've also worked for Heinz, Bid Food, and I now work with freelance industry clients such as Ella's Kitchen, Selfridges, Pip and Nuts. I've also worked for Finnebrogue on their plant-based range. So I do have quite a bit of experience in the plant-based arena too. Um, and I specialize in nutrition for adults, infants and children, as well as women in midlife including myself, (laughs) and those consuming plant-based diets. Incredible, both of you. Just wow, listening to your experience. It's such a pleasure to have you both on the podcast. So thank you for being here. 
before we get started, we have a bit of a tradition where we ask some quick fire questions to get to know you both a little. So the first question we have for you is what's your favourite season of the year? Claire, we'll go to you. My favourite season is spring because it's when everything starts to feel more optimistic. The days are getting longer and brighter. Everything's starting to grow and and it just feels really uh, positive and, and the start of something uh some something just exciting and, and certainly my mood improves in spring so that would be my favorite season great and how about you louise mine would definitely be the summer so i was i was born and brought up in the middle east and even though i've lived in the uk now for about 20 years i still can't get used to cold weather mm, i feel you i know exactly <laughs> what you mean yeah i'm definitely a summer baby i was born in august as well so that's kind of my uh where i'm comfortable in the sunshine yeah. And how about uh, what is your most used spice or herb and what's your favourite dish to use it in? Let's go back to you, Claire. Um, I really struggled with this because I have so many, um, but I stuck with rosemary um, because it's so versatile and you can use it in so many dishes. Um, but I had braised lentils on New Year's Eve. I was in Italy um, with my girlfriend and her family, and it's a tradition to eat braised lentils with rosemary on New Year's Eve to wish you luck for the new year. So that would be my favourite. Lovely. That sounds amazing. It does. Yeah. Italy, New Year's. Wow. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Italy is just, it's very depressing when you come back and buy tomatoes. (laughs) <laughs> and they don't taste of anything. <laughs> um, yeah. What about you, Louise? What's your favourite spice or herb? So my husband would probably tell you that I don't know what spice and herbs and spices are because <laughs> he says my cooking is so bland. He does most of the cooking uh, in our house, so it's absolutely fine. It gets me out of cooking. Um, but I'd say my go-to is probably something like paprika in like a chilli type dish because that's the kind of thing I whip up quickly if I'm in a rush with the kids. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this. It's, it's so hard to choose. There's so many. I was thinking maybe basil, if I had to pick one, mm. a bit of fresh basil. Maybe it's because you just said you're in Italy that I've said that. But uh, yeah, love, love a good herb. So let's kick off with the episode questions. Louise, could you please explain what meat alternatives are? Is there an established definition for them? There isn't really an established or universal definition for meat alternatives, but essentially they are products that look and cook like conventional animal meat. And they aim to recreate the texture and the taste using ingredients made from from non-animal sources. So they're different to other plant-based protein alternatives like beans and other pulses. They're created to be really in that similar format, similar taste and texture to meat, and have a a role to play in kind of supporting that transition to a lower meat consumption. And really being able to be used to directly replace the role of meat within a diet. So instead of using beef mince, you could use a a meat alternative mince. Same end dish, similar cooking methods. Um, And so they're particularly helpful for for people that are perhaps cooking for a range of both meat and non-meat eaters and still trying to create one dish rather than cooking multiple dishes. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for explaining. So as I mentioned in the introduction, many people are reducing the amount of meat they're eating and it is January, which means it's veganuary. And I was looking at a report that 700,000 people from 228 countries and territories signed up to cutting out meat in January 2023, which I believe was a record-breaking figure. So this one's for you again, uh, 
sort of Louise, do we know if people who reduce their meat intake will replace it, replace it with meat alternatives going forward? So some do and some don't. Um, in a UK-based survey that was published at the end of 2022, just under half, so 47% of people who reduce their animal product consumption were replacing them with, with, with meat alternatives on a regular basis. So it's really some will and, and some won't. And it, that probably comes down to things like cooking skills and, and their um, who they're cooking for and whether it's, you know, a whole family that they're shifting to reducing meat or whether they're trying to just reduce in small amounts and, and want to keep similar dishes in their diet. And things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Claire, for those who choose meat alternatives over meat products, what do you think are the reasons behind this? Could it be educational, climate related, social media influence or something else? There's often a number of reasons why people try to reduce their meat intake. Um, Often it's for health reasons. Um, For example, if they want to reduce the amount of saturated fat they're consuming, they might be doing veganuary, as you say. Um, They might be doing it for sustainability reasons, um, or they might have seen plant-based diet popularity increasing on social media or popular TV and Netflix programs. Uh, Not that I necessarily recommend those kind of programs. (laughs) They're not always very evidence-based. And Louise, I don't know if you tend to find this in your consumer research. Um, Certainly in my experience, you see like two broad groups of consumers of plant-based diets. Those who adopt plant-based as a way of life, mainly for ethical and sustainability reasons. And generally those are the ones who will more use whole foods, cook from scratch and follow an overall sort of vegan lifestyle. Um, And those who are going for a more flexitarian approach to diet, often for health reasons. And I find it's this latter group that buy into meat alternatives more because they want to recreate that experience of eating meat, but with lower fat and saturated fat options that are more sustainable. I, I would completely agree, Claire. And certainly that latter group is the group that meat alternatives are created to fulfill the needs for as well. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So we think about sales then, coming back to you, Louise, are you seeing a change in sales in the meat alternative sector? And is it kind of reflecting a move towards these types of products? So there was some um, analysis from the Good Food Institute across 13 European countries um, that included the UK, and they showed that the sales of plant-based foods grew by 22% between 2020 and 2022. But actually, when we're looking at, at UK data, the cost of living crisis continues to have an impact on, on our diets and our food purchasing habits. And as a result, we've actually seen a decrease in purchasing across all protein foods. Um, so it's a challenging time to really use sales to understand if people are moving towards the products or not. And we've even seen some alternative meat startup companies in the UK going out of business due to challenging times. Um, there is certainly demand there, though. Um, a study, a survey published at the end of 2023 that was developed by ProVeg, the University of Copenhagen and Ghent University, known as the Smart Protein Survey, found that more than 50% of meat eaters in Europe have cut down their annual meat intake, with 28% of the respondents saying they regularly consume these uh, meat alternatives. So there's that demand, but it's hard to look at the sales to really see if there's a move towards the products or not. Mm -hmm. 
And this episode is a debate. So we are looking at kind of both sides of the argument and some interesting perspectives on uh, how we view meat alternatives. Claire, do you think there is stigma surrounding the decision to opt for meat alternatives? I think if one member of the family wants to go for a plant-based diet um, or reduce their meat intake, it can sometimes be met with resistance by other family members. There is certainly a perception that you are compromising on taste, for example. Um, There might be concerns that some of the products are ultra-processed, and I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, So that may create some some concern or or stigma around buying into these kind of products. Um, You can also find that meat eaters can feel almost like a repressed guilt for consuming a diet that contains animal products. So there is a stigma towards those who want to eat less meat or want to adopt a plant-based or vegan diet and almost a kind of digging in of the heels Um, And there can also be some concerns that meat alternatives are more expensive than meat, um, not nutritionally equivalent to meat. Um, So I think that there is stigma, but it certainly is not associated with a huge amount of stigma versus the consumption of other types of food. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was interesting, Louise, that you mentioned sales are going down. Although, you know, if you actually look at the January stats, for example, more and more people are are aiming to go plant-based. So there's clearly a, a sort of disconnect there. Just going back to what you were saying then, Claire, about the nutritional composition of meat alternatives. Louise, how do meat alternatives compare with meat products from a macronutrient nutritional value point of view? This can, can vary widely depending on the product because there's such a wide variety of meat alternatives, both in terms of the base ingredients, but also the final nutritional composition of, of an end food product. Most of the commonly used base ingredients in meat alternatives are a source of protein, although not always. Um, and they generally tend to be lower in fat, particularly saturated fat, um, compared with meat products and also higher in fiber. If we focus on protein specifically, animal protein is often considered to be superior to plant protein. However, that's a bit of a myth that that we can do a bit of busting off. So protein from animals um, is complete, meaning they contain all of the essential amino acids, but that's not always the case in protein from plants. However, some plant proteins are complete, and these are sometimes the ones used in meat alternatives. So soy and quinoa are two examples. And products made from fungi like mycoprotein are also sources of complete protein. But meat alternatives do have the option as well to to blend different kinds of proteins to achieve a a blend of amino acids. And so even those incomplete proteins may be valuable and are also just valuable in the diet as sources of food as well. Um, Plant sources of protein can be less bioavailable than meat protein, but certain processing methods that are used to make plant-based meat alternatives can improve this. And also the fungi and algae protein sources have equivalent bioavailability to animal sources. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of that protein. But um, over the past few years, Professor Benjamin Wall and colleagues at the University of Exeter have published a couple of nice studies demonstrating that a microprotein-rich vegan diet can support the maintenance of muscle tissue in older adults. And that microprotein builds muscle to a greater extent than milk protein. So animal protein certainly isn't superior in this case. So there's there's lots more to kind of explore and it's not true to say that animal protein is superior to plant protein. Okay. Micronutrients. Yeah, of course. Please do. 
come in on this on this point um, as well. Um, just to mention that that most of those products that Louise was talking about are indeed a source of protein, although not all. It's actually quite hard to create protein equivalents with fish alternatives, although that's a very tiny part of the market. But the absolute levels of protein um, in plant-based alternatives versus, say, chicken, for example, tend to be lower in the alternative products per 100 grams if you compare them in absolute terms. Um, it's actually really difficult to get equivalents in absolute sort of levels and, and, and numbers um, because the eating experience is is negatively affected by putting more protein in, whether you're using uh, soy or, or the different protein sources. It gets to be quite chewy. Um, but, you know, a lot of these products are still high in protein and um, you can achieve amino acid profile um, similar to that of meat by combining the different sources. Uh, but Louise is right. The market is hugely varied. Some of the products like microprotein products, for example, will be low in fat and saturates. But there are other products that are trying to achieve the same mouthfeel as meat that do then start to add things like shea butter, for example, or even palm oil, which has its own sustainability as well as nutritional issues. Um, so those then, from a nutritional perspective, won't be as healthy a profile uh, as some of the products that don't use those ingredients. So, yeah, it's a very mixed bag. Okay, good to know. Meat contains micronutrients such as choline, iron, zinc, selenium, B and B vitamins. Louise, when meat alternative companies are creating their products, are the micronutrient profiles of meat considered and mirrored? So no, I wouldn't necessarily say the micronutrient profile of meat is necessarily considered and mirrored when meat alternatives are developed at this current time. But I suspect this might evolve over time. So with something like milk alternatives, for example, we're now seeing micronutrient content being more closely replicated with milk alternatives fortifying to near match the, the content of cow's milk. So I'd say at this moment, I wouldn't say micronutrient profile of meat alternatives mirrors meat, um, but potentially in the future, it's where, mm -hmm. where we would need to go to start being able to, to compare the two a bit more equivalently. Okay, and you touched on this slightly just now, but are there health benefits that meat alternatives offer that eating meat doesn't? So as we've mentioned, meat alternatives are typically higher in fiber compared to animal protein that, that does not contain any fiber and typically lower in saturated fats. So along with that would come the, the potential gut health, gut, gut microbiome benefits associated with more fiber and perhaps even the heart health benefits related to lower saturated fat intakes. But as Claire said, it's such a broad spectrum of, of products that it's difficult to, to put it across the whole category. Um, plant proteins as a group have been found to significantly reduce the risk of death from heart disease, whereas no beneficial risk reduction is found in, in equivalent animal protein intake. So there, there is a benefit of switching to those plant proteins versus meat protein. Um, and nutrition isn't the only relevant health consideration when it comes to meat alternatives. So it's the potential to fulfill dietary needs without expanding animal agriculture means it could also help to combat several other pressing new public health issues like antibiotic resistance, pandemic risk, food insecurity and climate change. Um, and so we might we might talk a little bit more about climate change um, mm -hmm. in our conversation. 
Um, but there's there's kind of a, a broader spectrum of health considerations that, that could be supported by reducing meat intake and, and using meat alternatives to do that. That's, yeah, really eye-opening when you actually think, when you switch it and think about it from that perspective. Um, and obviously sustainability is a core um, you know, part of that messaging when we talk about plant-based diets and, and how it has a positive impact on, on our environment. So yeah, we will be touching on that in a bit. Um, but just asking you now then, Louise, about the research, has there been much research into the effects of switching to meat alternatives on nutritional status? And if so, could you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, there was a really nice modelling analysis conducted by Dominic Farsi and colleagues at Northumbria University, and they explored the nutritional impact of replacing dietary protein with meat alternatives in the UK. So they used the National Diet and Nutrition Survey data, and overall they showed that overall carbohydrate, fibre, sugar and sodium intakes increased when we switched to meat alternatives, whereas protein, total and saturated fat, iron and vitamin B12 intakes decreased. So some shifts there. Um, they Overall, they concluded that meat alternatives can be a healthful replacement for meat if chosen correctly. And they would encourage consumers to choose meat alternatives that are low in sodium and sugar and high in fibre and protein and with a high micronutrient density to involve, to avoid compromising nutritional intake. That, that paper was published in the British Journal of Nutrition in 2022, if anyone wants to, to read up on it a little bit more. Great. Are there any particular disease areas that the research looks at or does it mainly focus on general health? I'd say much of the research started looking at general health and improving nutritional intakes and then how that could have a benefit. But as time has gone on, we started to see more research um, focused on particular diseases. So, for example, at Corn, we're now really interested in the potential for microprotein to support a reduction in cholesterol levels above and beyond just the, the improvements that you would see by lowering saturated fat in, in your diet. In 2023, Maria Shahid and colleagues published a paper in the American Journal of Nutrition, a meta-analysis that looked at, at microprotein and blood lipids and, and showed that microprotein may have important effects on blood lipids. Although we need more research, it's all still in its infancy in those specific disease areas. Okay. And this one's for both of you. Are there any clear research gaps in this area? And you know, what types of research would you like to see in future? Louise, let's go to you first, and then maybe we'll go to Claire after that. Okay, so like I said, it's still really in its infancy. So there's a lot of research that could be done personally um, from kind of my background as well. I'm really interested in the impact of meat alternatives on, on gut health and the gut microbiome. There have only really been two small randomized control trials looking at meat alternatives and the microbiome. One looking at replacing red and processed meat with microprotein that showed a, a reduction um, in genotoxic chemicals in feces and a significant improvement in abundance of beneficial gut bacteria. And another look, that looked at the effects of replacing conventional meat with plant-based meat in at least five meals per week. And they found a significant um, positive change in the microbiome of study participants as well. So I think there's, there's a lot more in that space, particularly as fiber is one of the things that we can get from some meat alternatives and that we don't often get from, from meat products. So I think that's that's the area that I'm particularly interested in. Well, sounds exciting. And how about you, Claire? What do you think? I'd really like to see more research into whether switching to plant-based diets, but also specifically plant-based diets, including meat alternatives, has an impact on muscle maintenance in older adults, so 50 plus, because we know that the ability to 
uh, to process and assimilate protein gets uh, less efficient as we get older. Uh, and it's important to maintain muscle from a mobility and general health point of view, as well as bone health, particularly in women in midlife and beyond. So I would be interested to understand whether there is sufficient protein quantity and quality with uh, diet rich in uh, meat alternatives. Um, and whether it's it's sufficient uh, to sustain muscle in later life. Great. That does sound very interesting and valuable. And I hope there's some dietitians or nutritionists, maybe some student dietitians, student nutritionists listening that, you know, are interested in a career in research and might be uh, interested in doing that, that uh, research study. So, yeah, fingers crossed. That sounds like brilliant uh, thesis ideas. So moving then to the guidelines, Louise, are there specific guidelines that the industry must follow when creating meat alternatives? There aren't any guidelines or even best practices out there for meat alternative sector, really, when creating new products, which perhaps it might be nice to see in the future. At Corn, we've developed kind of our internal nutrition profiles for new product development and for reformulation to take into consideration government's nutritional reformulation targets and to try and ensure that what we do develop is the best it can be. And um, But there aren't any guidelines that we have to follow. So maybe in the future, that's something that would, would help to improve the, the standard of meat alternatives across the board. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Is that something that has been discussed? Do you know if it's in the pipeline or is it still very much uh, internal to each company? I think at the moment it's it's internal to each company. I think there's more focus going on that that micronutrient profile. So we said a lot of the, the macronutrient profile is, you know, we've talked about quite a, a bit over the years, and now the micronutrient profile is really coming out as as um trying to define what's what's important there and how can meet alternatives really meet the needs if people are, are switching to them, you know, if they're switching to them. Just a couple of days a week, do they get enough of the micronutrient from the rest of the meat that they're consuming? If they're switching mm-hmm. to them completely, are they then deficient in some of the micronutrients or not? Claire, are there some types of meat alternatives that are better than others when it comes to nutritional value? So like we've both said, the market is incredibly diverse and the nutritional profile of meat alternative products really does vary quite widely. Um, So I would certainly recommend that people who are shopping choose products that have mainly green and amber traffic lights, particularly for saturated fat and salt, uh, and avoid adding much salt in cooking uh, or at the table. Um, Like I've said, some products do use considerable amounts of palm or shea oil to create that sort of melting mouthfeel that's more meat-like. And there can be quite a lot of salt added for taste, particularly in meat alternatives that are flavoured. So I would certainly advise people to go for those with the lowest salt and saturated fat content uh, for sure. And some fortified alternatives will contain um, iron and vitamin B12, for example. Uh, Some might have uh, added zinc. Um, But generally, it's quite variable again as to whether there are added micronutrients. So I would again recommend that if you are choosing meat alternatives, go for ones that are fortified. But, you know, I think from a sort of general advice point of view, um, if you're removing meat from your diet completely um, or indeed if you're eliminating all animal products, 
you can certainly have a really healthy and balanced diet, but you need to be really mindful that you're consuming a wide variety of whole foods, fruit and vegetables, as well as pulses, soy products, a variety of grains, nuts and seeds, for example, just to make sure that you are getting a range of nutrients. Many of our listeners are healthcare professionals. So you spoke then about what consumers should do, which is really relevant. But what if the healthcare professional has been asked about meat alternatives from their patients? What do you think they should be aware of when when discussing meat alternatives and following a plant-based diet? And are there any nutrients which might be at risk of deficiency if people have replaced meat with alternatives? I think it's really important that you're discussing the total diet and lifestyle with a patient um, because a vegan or plant-based diet can absolutely meet all the nutritional requirements if it's planned properly. But often if people aren't aware and aren't educated enough, they can struggle to meet their requirements for vitamin B12, for example, um, iron, which is present mainly in red meats, but also present in pulses, green vegetables and so on. So it would be about encouraging them to, to make sure all those nutrient needs are met. Um, so iron for sure, pulses, green vegetables, um, and consuming those foods with a source of vitamin C to enhance the absorption, um, looking potentially at a vitamin B12 supplement. Um, if they're also removing dairy foods and fish from the diet, making sure there's a source of iodine, which you can find in some sort of seaweed and kelp products, or again, via a supplement. Um, and from a sort of broader point of view, making sure there's sufficient vitamin D and calcium in the diet if it's heavily plant-based. Uh, so again, there are plant-based sources um, of those nutrients, um, but it's just about understanding the, the total diet and lifestyle uh, and making sure that, that it's as healthy as possible with a broader range of, of nutrient sources as possible. Wonderful, brilliant advice, thank you. Going over now to you then, Louise, let's talk about planetary health. Healthy for the body doesn't necessarily equal planetary health. Are meat alternatives more sustainable than meat? So compared to other foods, meat is typically associated with the highest greenhouse gas emissions. And so meat alternatives do tend to vastly have a much lower environmental impact than equivalent meat products. There may be the odd exception to this where that a high amount of processing is associated with energy or resource use, um, but this would really be an exception. For example, um, production of microprotein in giant fermenters uses less water, produces fewer greenhouse gases and takes up less land than rearing livestock. And the carbon footprint of corn mints is more than 95% lower than that of beef. Okay, this is quite a big question, but do you think that meat alternative products have a role to play in addressing global food sustainability challenges in future? I would say they certainly do. So we know our dietary habits need to change and we need to be consuming less meat to protect planetary health. However, we also know that diets are hard to change. Meat alternatives provide a way for people to transition or shift their diets towards consuming less meat quite seamlessly without overly altering their favourite dishes or the flavours they like to use or their cooking methods. So they help to eliminate some of the, the barriers to changing our dietary habits. So in that, in that sense, I think they ultimately do have an important role to play in addressing global food sustainability challenges. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And back to you then, Claire, let's think about it from a health perspective. If people are cutting out meat, is it better to replace it with naturally meat-free products, for example, vegetables, or with meat alternatives? This is, uh, pardon the pun, quite a meaty topic. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say the best option is to go for naturally meat-free whole foods that are still a source of protein, like pulses and soy products. And while things like jackfruit and cauliflower are tasty, they're not nutritionally equivalent to what they would be replacing, like pulled pork, chicken or beef. So it really is important to make sure that you are replacing meat with a source of protein as the center of place at most meals. However, people want to choose meat alternatives for various reasons. They might want the taste of meat, the texture of meat and so on. So I would go for those that have the least amount of salt and saturated fats and try to choose those with shorter ingredient lists that are less processed, ideally also those that are fortified. Okay. And if we're just looking at things from a nutritional profile perspective, Claire, can you say whether meat alternatives are the healthier option? Um. I mean, they can certainly offer more protein. Um, They can offer more micronutrients, if added, um, versus, uh, say, lentils, um, potentially. Um, But they also offer more salt and saturates um, on occasions, although, as as Louise has observed, not not all the time. Um, They are more processed, and I think we're going to talk about that shortly. So... I I would certainly say go with whole foods, um, making sure that you're having a source of protein um, and use meat alternatives from a convenience standpoint, from a taste standpoint, if it's something that you enjoy, but going for those healthier options. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a bit of a balance. I mean, as we all like to say, as nutritional dietitians, balance is best. But it is true in that sense. You know, I think it's about looking at individual lifestyles and um, tailoring people's diets to what's best for them, but maintaining that overview of nutritional composition of the total diet, as you said, Claire. So let's talk about ultra processed foods. Claire, you did mention and allude that we were going to move on to this. And I obviously we had to touch on this. Uh, it's been huge in the media and we all are aware of the negative health implications that have been linked with ultra processed foods we actually had a whole episode in september discussing this topic and i do believe there is still very much uh, a debate over the role of upfs in our diet and it really strikes me that all meat alternatives are probably classified as ultra processed foods claire do you think this is correct so yes the majority of meat alternatives would be classed as ultra processed foods Some of them, but not all, um, can have very long ingredient lists um, using quite a range of additives to impart flavor, to give mouthfeel, used for binding and stabilizing properties. But as as your previous episode in September uh, observed, when it comes to the health impacts of UPFs, we currently have a lot more that we need to know So we don't know whether it's the processing itself that has a negative health influence beyond the nutritional profile, because many UPFs are also high in fat, salt, sugar and saturates. Um, We don't know if that processing or each of the additives used themselves will have a negative impact beyond that nutrition profile. There's some evidence that 
Some types of emulsifier can negatively affect gut microbiome, even when it's used in nutritionally quite healthy products. But we certainly need more research. There was a study in The Lancet late last year that showed that some UPFs, mainly processed meats and sweetened drinks, are associated with a higher risk of multimorbidity. So that's a number of different uh, morbidities, heart disease, cancer, and so on. Um, but it did show that processed cereals like bread uh, and meat alternatives are not associated with that higher risk of multimorbidity. So that was a really interesting study. It was based upon the EPIC data. Um, so there are the usual limitations to that sort of observational research, the usual confounding factors and the lack of cause and effect. Um, but in this study, it was well conducted. It was well statistically controlled and analyzed. Um, one thing I will say is the dietary data were collected in the early 1990s. So it's quite hard to historically estimate the degree of processing that was applied to the, the foods being consumed then. Um, and I, I know that the meat alternative market was relatively small then and quite lacking in the diversity that we see today. So the products could have been less processed. Um, they could have had a better nutritional profile than those that we see today. Uh, I'm certainly not saying that today's meat alternatives are associated with negative health consequences. Certainly the research that uh, Louise has been outlining um, would say no. Um, but I would certainly advise choosing those with lower levels of salt and saturates um, and fewer ingredients on the ingredient list. Okay. And that's a good place to start. But I suppose it is still just such a confusing picture when it comes to ultra processed foods. Mm -hmm. Claire, do you think that this processing can have a negative health consequence on the end consumer? I, I think it's it's really hard to say. Certainly the evidence on emulsifiers and gut microbiome is, is looking interesting and like there may be negative health consequences beyond the nutritional profile. Um, but the recent rapid research review that the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition conducted last year suggested that we should still be looking at nutritional profile first. Um, and uh, it's the nutrition and avoiding HFSS foods, those that are high in saturates, salt, uh, fat and sugar, um, should be prioritized over avoiding ultra processed foods. Um, so there's really a kind of overlap of, of processing and nutrition. Um, my personal view is that we, we should try to reduce the amount of processed foods that we eat and focus on whole foods as much as we can um, and eating uh, of a varied and balanced diet. Um, but certainly we have to also take into account convenience, lack of time for cooking, lack of education and cooking skills, and, and all of the issues that that come with uh, eating a sort of whole food diet um, and, and looking at the cost of living crisis as well um, and, and the cost of, of heating, cooking, buying fresh ingredients and so on. So we have to really sort of factor in so many different parameters um, here. Thank you. And, and my take on it is that, that to me, the level of processing with the evidence that we have so far doesn't necessarily tell us the nutritional health of a product. So like Claire was saying, we've kind of got uh, the processing categories, but we also have our ways of looking at the nutritional health of a product and the, the high fat, salt, sugar kind of ratings. And I think 
like the scientific advisory committee advice, looking at that the nutritional components and the nutritional composition of a product is is where we need to be focusing right now. Although we need to keep a watchful eye on on the evidence on the the emerging evidence in the ultra processed field, and um, and we know that there are some foods within the ultra processed food category that can and do contribute towards a healthy balanced diet. So we don't have to remove all of the processed foods from our diet. Perhaps we do need to reduce the total quantity that we're eating because we also need to be reducing our intake of salt, sugar, and, and fat. And um, the, the ultra-processed food category is so broad, just like the meat alternative category is. So there's a, a lot of confusion within there. There's um, There was a nice study um, that included a meta-analysis that broke down by food groups. So I know Claire's talked about the Lancet paper that, that looked at plant-based alternatives, but there was another paper that um, looked at ultra-processed foods that provided a source of fibre, such as some of those meat alternatives that would also provide a source of fibre, um, and they were actually associated with reduced health risks. So there might be something in that, that fibre content of meat alternatives that it's interesting to, to explore and to understand. Okay. And to add even more to the complexity, I suppose you can't measure even just one food. You have to actually look at it from a, a total diet perspective as well. You know, if one person, their diet may contain little ultra-pressed foods, but the rest of their diet may not be as conducive to healthy eating as, you, as we'd want it to be. So it is just such a complex picture when it comes to nutrition research. But you've both done really well there to summarise uh, both your points. So thank you for sharing. And Claire, you did touch on this, but we obviously can't uh, think about uh, these things alone without considering cost and the role that uh, you know cost of living has played in people's decisions to purchase or not purchase uh, meat or meat alternatives. Louise, we know that lots of people are having to be extra careful with how and where they spend their money. So are you able to give a bit of information on how meat alternatives compare to meat products in terms of cost? Yeah, so there was a lot in the press, I think, last year about how meat alternatives cost more than meat, but that isn't always the case. So it is really about looking at the labels at that time, what's on promotion, what's not, to really decipher where the, the cheapest purchase is. Um, in December 2023, Corn did some analysis to look at the cost of their frozen corn mince, 500 grams big bag, and they found that it was 12% cheaper than chilled meat mints on a price per kilo basis. So I would certainly encourage a bit of kind of price tag reading to see where the savings can be made. Um, there might also be savings in terms of kind of energy savings and, and cooking time and things like that compared to meat, but I don't really have the figures on that to say. So I'd say mm. price is often cited as one of the biggest barriers to purchasing, to switching and, and purchasing meat alternatives, um, but it's not always the case. And it will depend on what's on promotion, and the various different categories as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are, you know, other within the mix of meat alternatives, when you're looking at beans and lentils and uh, other kind of protein containing plant based foods, they are uh, low and inexpensive. So um, if you're thinking about those as well, um, they don't have to necessarily be as costly as they're painted sometimes in, in the media. Yeah. So to finish off then, there is advice out there to cut back on meat consumption, especially red meat, for a number of reasons, including environmental impact and health. To close our episode, what advice would each of you give to consumers in terms of choices made when it comes to meat versus meat alternatives? Claire, let's go to you first, please. Well, my advice would be to focus mainly on whole foods that are a source of protein, 
when you're replacing meat, such as pulses and soy products. Even if you're mixing meat with pulses, you can reduce um, your intake of meat and still have some benefits. Um, so I would just be, you know, going half and half maybe to begin with, if you're making uh, a dish with minced beef in, replacing some of it with pulses um, or a, a meat alternative. Um, it can still make a difference and can help that transition. But certainly I would be looking at the bigger picture, trying to eat as varied a diet as possible with plenty of vegetables, pulses, grains, nuts and seeds, go for a Mediterranean pattern of eating for optimal health. And when choosing meat alternatives, go for those mainly with green and amber traffic lights, ideally ones that are fortified. Lovely. Thank you, Claire. And how about you, Louise? I'd probably remind consumers that meat alternatives are there to support them in reducing their meat consumption, but that we don't need to completely remove meat from our diet, because I think sometimes that perception puts people off trying meat alternatives and, and reducing their meat intake. Um, I'd also say if you try a meat alternative, the first meat alternative you try, and you don't like it, it's worth trying another sometimes because the category is really in its infancy. And so when new products are developed, sometimes they don't quite meet the taste and texture perception that consumers are expecting. And so there's still a lot of product development going on there. So it's always worth trying something else if the first one doesn't necessarily meet the perception that you are hoping for. Um, and also just to remind them that they lend themselves well to those 50-50 type mixes that Claire was, was talking about. Um, you can use them, you know, substitute half of your meat for half a meat alternative. Great. Well, thank you so much to both of you for being on this episode. It's been an absolute you know, joy to listen to you and hear your perspectives. Um, yeah, and that, that's it from us. So thank you and uh, we wish you the best. Thanks thank so much.